Yeah, thanks, Todd. Um, yes, welcome everyone to Faith Community. We're glad you're here. And it is exciting to see you, but you know what else is exciting? It's exciting once in a while to get a note from somebody or get, you know, like a letter. And I'm going to have you just take that. Please don't open it. Uh, I'll give you a, a, a little heads up and then I'll have you open it a little later, okay? Um, and so... Everybody here, oh, by the way, uh, Scripture was mess, uh, mentioned. If, you would, um, if you'd like to find your Scripture now, it'd be good, because we're going to move around a little bit uh, this morning in the Scripture. We're going to visit uh, Exodus chapter 20. We're going to visit um, Daniel chapter 5. And then we're going to camp out in John chapter 8. All right, so if you catch all those, it'd be great. And uh, if you don't, well, that's okay, too. A lot of our scripture will be on the screen this morning. Some of you are getting some love letters here. I hope you don't mind. Please don't open them till I ask you to. Thank you. Isn't it great to get a note, though, from somebody that you think a lot of and you know, you can get a card sometimes that Hallmark makes or some other card company and they, they write a little note inside, it's nice. But when it's just a personal thing, just a handwritten note, just something that was created from their hand and then they tell you how much you mean to them, isn't that special? Yeah. How many of you identify with that? It's ever happened to you. Okay, four of you. That's great. Uh Okay, you may open your envelopes now, but don't share the message with anybody around you, especially your spouse. I don't want any jealousy setting in here this morning. Okay, you should have had time to read it. Uh, who among us has received a message this morning that is typewritten? You can tell it was done on a computer or of some kind. Okay, I see one hand, I see two. Someone else who has a type, I see another one over here. See one down here, on oh, the back. Okay, everybody that has a typewritten note, would you stand? You're special. Hey, Joshua in the back, would you mind reading what your note says? Good morning, glad you are here. Okay, good morning, glad you are here. RHC. That's me, by the way. Thank you all. You did a great job. And as a uh, reminder of this morning, you actually may keep that, and I will autograph them after service. <laughs> Those of you that got handwritten notes, uh, where are you? Oh, boy, that's great. All right. Um, let's see. Michelle, you're way back there. You, you can... You can tell us, let's everybody stand that has a handwritten note. Let's see how many of those we have. Oh, yeah, good. Hmm. Hmm. That does something to you, doesn't it? Thank you. You may be seated. And you, too, may keep your note as a souvenir, and uh, you can date it and all the rest of it. I received a note once. Actually, it wasn't really a note. It was a four-page epistle. And the address was to Mr. Robert H. Crosswaite. When the writing looks familiar and you say, hmm, that looks like my father's writing, you know it's not good. Box 42, Eaton House, Acadia University, Wolfham, Nova Scotia. So I opened this letter. It's dated January the 8th, 1966. The postage on it is five cents. Not lying. You can see it right there, a one and a four. And um, that would have been at the end of my first semester in my second year, or as they say here, sophomore year. And I'm going to read some of it to you. Dear Bob, with love, your dad. 
Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Trust me, the rest is very censored. <laughs> I knew he could, but I'd never heard him use those words before. It's like uh, you failed every course but one. This is your deal. I'm not paying a penny towards your college. That was all understood before you went, because I can't. It's time to buck up. That was a good letter. Must have been. I still have it. Haven't bucked up yet, but anyway. And then over the years, I've gotten a few. I got a lot. I got a lot. I got, we've got albums that we've made up of these, just album after album. But I've got some that really were great, either Father's Day or birthdays, those kind of cards, personalized. Oh, uh, yeah, aren't they great? And this one here. Somebody's laughing. That's not, that's not funny. This is serious. See the hugs and kisses on it? How many ever get those? Oh, that's good. If you don't, boy, I just pray for you. And here's one here with two clowns in there. See the two clowns? Yeah, I love that one. It's probably one of my favorites right here. They colored this one. These are all from my, one or the other of my grandchildren. The personal portrait there. So another one here. It's I won't read this one to you, but it's front and back, both sides, all four. You can't miss the message. It's everywhere. All different colors and happy. This is a birthday one. Woo, I felt really birthdayed that day. And then I get the special artwork too. How many of you get special artwork? Huh? How many of you have ever gotten special artwork like that? Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, that's personal. That's real. That's hand done. You, there's no replacement for that. You can't. It's just wonderful stuff. In 1989, the year actually that we started our ministry right here in Ellsworth, a Philadelphia financial analyst purchased an old torn picture uh, of a country scene, very pastoral scene. He got it at a flea market in Adamstown, Pennsylvania, and he bought it for four dollars because he liked the frame. He liked the look of that frame, how it kind of made the picture come alive. A little bit later, when he attempted to detach the frame from the painting, the frame just more or less, since it was pretty aged, it, it fell apart in his hands, and he found a folded document between the canvas and the wood backing, which appeared to be an old copy of the Declaration of Independence. So he went to a friend, an expert friend, who collected Civil War memorabilia, and he advised him to have it appraised because he said, I think it might be worth more than you think. So he did. And the conclusion was it was real. It was one of 500 official copies from the first printing of the Declaration of Independence back in 1776. Only 24 similar copies were known to exist before this great find, of which a mere three were privately owned. And this rare document was offered for sale by Sotheby's on June the 4th, 1991, so a couple of years later, after getting the research done, that lucky find went out to auction, and it fetched even more than had been anticipated. They thought that it would bring anywhere between, get this now, 800000 and $1.2 million, uh, at auction. And it turned out that it brought in $2.42 million at the sound of the gavel. So... In, in excuse me, 2000, uh, June of 2000, so nine years later, Donald Shear of Atlanta, who purchased the original copy for $242 million, put it up for sale a second time. Months before the auction, Sotheby's confirmed the printed broadsheet not only as one that was authentic, but it was also one of the three finest that were known. It was as crisp, he said, as it was on the evening that it was printed by John Dunlap to carry the news of America's independence to the people of the 13 colonies. This time, that great find was purchased, and, and that was the one, keep this in mind, it's the same one. It was purchased for $4 at a flea market just a little over 10 years previous. Now at its second sale, it brings a whopping 8 
$1.14 million in an online auction. Now, if that, ha and, and it's significant, our history is significant, these, these documents are significant. If you've ever had the pleasure of visiting the Smithsonian and, and seeing the, the, uh, the Declaration of Independence, some of these things that are on display, I mean, very significant stuff. If that handwritten note signed by the 56 founding fathers that declared America was independent from Great, Bit uh, Great Britain was worth $8.14 million, think, if you can expand your mind uh, to this point, think of what an original handwritten note from God must be worth. And on that point, I think it's interesting to note that three different times in the course of history, God took the time to write out his thoughts by hand. What he had to say was so important that he gave his handwritten notes so we would not miss the intent of his message. And so we're here today for a purpose, and let's just, let's just make this purpose worthwhile. I want us to look at those three places in time today, and I, then I want to ask the question that begs to be asked, what are you going to do with God's three handwritten notes? Are you going to treat them with great value and respect, or are you going to handle them in a foolish way. Just please understand, there is eternal treasure at stake here today. And I hope you realize the great opportunity that stands before you. The first note from God we find in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 21. And then you can continue your reading from chapter 21 of Exodus all the way through to, chapter, to the end of chapter 31. The first note from God gave us the law. When Adam and Eve lived in innocence in the Garden of Eden, there was no knowledge of good or evil because evil didn't exist in their hearts or minds. However, when they fell prey to Satan's deception and they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, sin entered their world. And they were suddenly confronted with choices they never needed to know. And at that point, you can mark it down, innocence was lost. That was the end of real innocence. That's one of the byproducts of sin. It steals your innocence. At this point in time, God wanted to make the boundaries of sin very clear to the chosen people. So he sent Moses up to Mount Sinai and he etched in stone with his own finger what we call the Ten Commandments. And we can read that in Exodus chapter 31. And uh, let's uh, throw that up on the screen. Exodus 31 and verse 18. And when he, God, had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two, tablet, two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone. Let's read that last line together. Written with the finger of God. He wrote the law. It was important because it gave us God's clear-cut definition of sin. The law points out what sin is so we can recognize it. Do not have any other gods before me. Do not make idols. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Do not forget the Sabbath. Those first four are all vertical. Those are all our relationship between man and God. And then do not dishonor or disrespect your father or mother. Do not kill or murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not covet. Those are what we call the horizontal commandments because they all deal with living with and, and around other people. Those are all the interrelational uh, uh, laws. Now, the first time God wrote, he wrote the law. He drew a line that we should not cross over. He created clear boundaries and distinct lines and told us if we move outside of them, we've sinned. All of us are big people. All of us know this stuff. All of us are adult in our thinking, and we know that these things are true. We know when we've gone against the plan and the purpose of God. 
But it was a very high standard, and still is, but God is a holy God. And what happens there is it created a lot of guilt because we're all sinners, and we fall continuously short of the mark. What does Romans 3.23 say? Maybe you know this, and if you you do, you can say it with me without reading it probably. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How many have sinned? Who's that include? Me, you, all. I want to make a statement here that I don't know that I've ever really considered before or ever shared with you. You and I were never expected to live up to God's standards without help from Him. Now that to me is encouraging. See, He gave us or drew the lines in an effort to bring definition to sin and to draw us to Him for help. But unfortunately, to this very day, a great many of us either think we can be holy without Him Or we just get hung up on all the don'ts. Now you can find people who feel that they are saved because they practice a man-made religious system of do's and don'ts. Sometimes we call that legalism and other times we just call it the religion of do's and don'ts. You can also find people who will tell you they don't need the guilt or the hassle of someone else They call it a higher power or another power, telling them what they can and cannot do. And let me also say this. If you think you can make it into God's favor by simply keeping the law, good luck. Good luck. And let me also say that the Ten Commandments are a very small, a very tiny percentage of the whole and entire and comprehensive law of God. Read the rest of the book of Exodus, and then read Leviticus, and then keep reading, and you'll see that the law is very, very comprehensive. For years, for years and years, in a lot of churches around America, all over North America, all you heard from most pulpits was what you could not do when you became a Christian. Some of you grew up in those churches. Some of you attended those churches. Some of you know some of those churches. Some of you know there's still some of them around. So what did Christianity, when it's boiled down to its finest point, became? For a lot of people, it became a religion of don'ts. Who can ever live up to God's standards on their own? God's effort to define sin left most of us feeling like we could never live up to his expectations. And you know, I may be talking to somebody, you're sitting here this morning, you've got some guilt, you've got some shame, you've got some unresolved issues, but you know you've fallen short of God's standard of righteousness. Well, let me just tell you something. You are not alone. You're in a good company. I don't think there is one of us that has not or does not feel that way. So the first note from God gave us the law. And man has been trying unsuccessfully to live up to his standards on their own ever since. I said it before, I'll repeat it. Good luck with that. The second note from God declared judgment. I invite you to come with me to Daniel chapter 5. Someone said it's a terrifying thing to fall into judgment at the hands of the living God. So let's read Uh, Daniel 5, starting at verse 1. I'm going to read about six verses. Belshazzar was the king at that time. And Belshazzar the king made a great feast. I mean, this is a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and he drank wine in the presence of the thousand. Seems like you can't party if you don't have the wine Or if you don't have the wine, there is no party. And you had a thousand people all slurping that stuff. You're going to have quite a party. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem. Had been. Okay? These are the spoils of that war that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. 
Mm. It's starting to heat up here now. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. So there's one predominant theme so far in this party. What is it? Drinking. Okay? So we got a party going on. And then verse five, or verse 4 says, They drank wine, and they praised the small g gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. And then, it gets better. In the very same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. (laughs) Then the king's countenance changed, and the thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his hips were loosened, and his knees knocked against each other. Yeah. So the party has gotten to a, to a fever pitch. They were partying hardy until he read the handwriting on the wall. And by the way, if you've ever seen read or heard or used that little phrase, the handwriting is on the wall, that's where it comes from, Daniel chapter 5. That's where it originates. Because when that happened, can I just humbly suggest to you, the party was over. Partying one minute, no party the next. His face turned pale, the Bible says. How frightened did the king, this is the king, how frightened did the king become? Well, his knees knocked together and his legs gave way under him and he became terrified, so much so that his, his countenance, his, his facial countenance, his whole demeanor changed. He had mocked God. He had broken one of the, the, the cardinal laws. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Oh yeah, come on, bring in the gold goblets, those ones that used to be down in that temple of God in Jerusalem, and fill them up. Fill them up with good wine. And as they drank themselves into a stupor, they praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. And in so doing, Belshazzar mocked the one true God and brought judgment upon himself. Now the lesson is here. Right here, let's get the lesson before we move on. You don't want to mess around with the one true and living God. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews 10.31. He said, it is a dreadful thing or very fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You can mock the gods of gold and silver, of bronze and iron, of wood and stone, because they're dead anyway. You can mock them all day long and start tomorrow and do it again. But if you mock the living God, you bring judgment upon yourself according to his word. Now, I have to just bring it into today's world. There are people all around us who mock the one true and living God every day of their lives by the way they live those lives. Uh, By the way, I was there myself one time, so I'm not going to get too tough on anybody else. That's the other thing that, that really bothers me about some Christian people is they come to Christ and their standing with God is perfected in Christ, but they're not yet perfect, and yet they think they are because they're still comparing themselves to someone else who hasn't found a beggar's bread. And let's be careful about that. And so here, here we find people that take the holy name of God in vain. And, and, And not just take it in vain, but think nothing of it. It becomes part of their regular vernacular. I mean, it's just part of who they are and what they say. There are those just living in immorality. They're just swimming in it. And it's all around us. And we see it on all sides. 
And there are those that are committing adultery thinking nothing of it. There are those that are drinking themselves into a drunken stupor every day or every weekend or every party or whatever, just going from one high time to the next. There are those that take the things of God lightly as if they aren't really true. There are those who love to make fun of the church. They love to make fun of God. They love to make fun of the Bible. They love to make fun of Christians. And they act like they can do anything they want with absolutely no consequences. They are so arrogant in their sin. Listen to me again, if you would. If you are living, or if I am living in arrogance and rebellion, and while we are so doing, you or I have to stand before Almighty God, and we had to do it today, to give an account for the way we've been living, your face, my face, would turn pale too. And our knees would be knocking too. And our legs would be collapsing collapsing underneath us too. Because sin is not, never has been, and never will be a joke to God. If you stand before Him and your sin has never been uh, covered by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, it will be terrifying to say the least. So hear me this morning in love. Do not walk in pride. Do not walk in arrogance before God as if He couldn't touch you. And as if you could do whatever you feel like you want to do. Because one day you're going to stand before Him and you're going to give such an account to Him. You see, so very simply put, we can't mock God and get by with it. But there will always be people who think they can. Let me tell you some, another group of people. There will always be people who try to sugarcoat or downplay the judgment of God. And I want us to move ahead now in the story of Daniel and Belshazzar in the fifth chapter of Daniel down to verse 23, if we might. And so he's explaining, uh, Daniel's explaining this to the king like where the party kind of ended. And he said, you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of this, his house before you, and you and your lords, your wives, your concubines, have drunk wine from them. I mean, that's just total desecration. And you've praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. Why? Because they're dead. And the God who holds your breath in His hand. Remember the song we sing here? That's your breath in my lungs. How many times have you breathed in the last 25 minutes just sitting there trying to stay awake? How many times have you breathed? You don't even know. But let me just tell you this. Every single breath has been a gift from God the Creator. And the God who holds your breath in His hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. Then the fingers of the hand were sent from God, and this writing was written. Wow. Wow. So this is what happened to kind of shake up the party. And in case you didn't know, I wanted to explain it to you. See, Belshazzar didn't realize the serious nature of what he, would, what he had asked for, or I don't think he would have ever requested the gold goblets to come from the temple in Jerusalem. But Daniel told him, you have set yourself up against the Lord God of heaven. You have honored all these false gods, but you dishonored the one God who holds in your in his hand, your life, your breath, your very existence. And then he went on to tell King Belshazzar what the handwriting on the wall really meant. No man, no scribe, no expert, none of those people in the king's court could transcribe or translate 
what was on the wall. And he called for Daniel and said, I understand you know what these words are, and you can tell me what they say. It was mine, mine, tikal you farsen, and that meant nothing to them, and it means nothing to you. But here was the translation Daniel said. Here's what it means. Here's what they mean. Your days are numbered. You've been weighed in the scales or in the balances. And you've been found wanting. You came up short. And thirdly, they mean you have lost your kingdom. It is over. And he had to have been shocked when he realized the drastic outcome of his sin. And likewise, if you and I go on and we willfully sin with no interest in repentance, no interest in turning, no interest in getting it right, and no, no interest in calling upon the great mercy of God, we too will be shocked with the drastic outcome of our sin. And that's why we need to be really careful about how we live. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, great verse, it says the wages of sin or the payment of sin is death. That's the first part of that verse, and let that kind of sink into your mind. In Hebrews 9, 27, it says, It is appointed unto man once to die. Once. And after that, the judgment. If you're only born once, You'll die twice. If you're born twice, once physically and once from above by the Spirit of God, then you'll die once, maybe, and maybe not at all. Because you may still be here. Wouldn't that be great? When Jesus comes back for his own. Wouldn't that be great? You won't be looking for the undertaker. You'll be looking for the upper taker. But I come, with a, I come with a heavy heart this morning. I come with a sense of sadness. I think it's more than just nostalgia. I think it's more than just growing old and, and, and uh, mellowing. You know, they say mellowing is the last stage before rotting. Uh, I wonder. But I come with something on my heart today that is hard to share, but I feel I must. And I don't know if you've noticed this or not, and if you haven't, then I'm bringing it to your attention. If you have, then you're probably with me on this. So I'll just ask the question as if we're in conversation. Have you noticed there is a, the I'm not going to say there seems to be, there is a theological movement taking place in America to water down judgment. To minimize sin and to erase the consequences for sin. And by that I mean apparently a lot of people don't think that judgment, accountability, punishment, or, or hell... Are, are, are either either necessary or real. They're not, they're, 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 they don't make sense. In fact, I've met people and talked to people who don't even believe that hell exists. And I mean, as we see it described in the Bible, the only reason hell would exist, I think for them, is just so they can complete their vocabulary. I often have people use that in ordinary, everyday language, and then they'll apologize. They say, oh, I'm sorry. I said, don't apologize. It's a Bible word. I'm very, very familiar with the place. And then many people think, well, I've had people say to me, there, there can't really be any such thing or any such form of punishment as a hell 
where a living God, he would never bring judgment upon anyone. You know what? A long time before you and I and other brilliant scholars were on this globe, Belshazzar the king didn't believe that anything like that could happen, let alone to him. And all these hundreds of years later, this world is still full of people who think like that. And I say this, why is there a heaven to gain? And we're all in favor of heaven. It gets a 100% vote every time. Why is there a heaven to gain if indeed there's no hell to shun? Of course, some don't believe that either one exists. And I just pray that they wake up before they wake up. Because the judgment of God I know it's not a fun subject, and I know we don't fill our churches with those kind of topics, but it's the judgment of God is serious business. And I would be shirking my responsibility to you, certainly to God, if I just kept overlooking that and said, well, we don't mention that because that's not very popular. And I don't know if people even believe it. Look, just closely look at God's past judgments. And then let's remember not to let history repeat itself. So we're still in Daniel 5, and we go down to verse 30, and I think we can get that up, right? And at that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, uh, was organizing another party for the next weekend. Is that what your Bible says? Now, the translation I'm reading from today says that Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, what? Hey, don't tell me there's no such thing as the judgment of God. Look at verse 31. Oh, we don't, do we have verse 31? Somebody read it for me if you have it right there. Okay, Darius the Mede took over the kingdom. What did Daniel say the writing on the wall meant? You're toast, and the kingdom is gone. That night! And Darius the Mede, and that was the start of the Medo Empire. (laughs) That very night. Have you ever heard anyone say, oh, God's a God of love. God would never send someone into any form of eternal retribution or or punishment. God will, will not judge sin. Look, to say God will not judge sin is to deny history. And I could take you even through the annals of modern history and prove that pretty easily. God has always judged sin. In this particular instance, in Daniel 5, the finger of judgment wrote death and destruction for one man. In Genesis 18 and 19, in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, those wicked cities, God wrote destruction for an entire city that was living in sin. Not a pretty picture. In Genesis chapter 6 and 7, in the case of Noah and the great flood, God wrote destruction not for one man, not for a city, not for two cities, but for the entire planet when the world was described as a place where man's every thought was only evil all the time. The Bible even says God repented of making man. And that doesn't mean he had to repent of a sin. It meant there was a complete turn. There was a complete change of his mind. No one talks about the reality of eternal consequences anymore. But I want to go back in in a sobering moment here 
And, 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 and I want to remind you that in Scripture, I don't think, I don't, no one talked more of eternal consequences than our precious Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. Is it important? Very much. Is it serious? Very serious. Why? Because eternity, <laughs> see, eternity is forever. Can I say this in love to you? You cannot afford to be wrong on this issue. So the first handwritten note brought the law. The second handwritten note declared judgment. See, God's been busy all this time. And the third note from God wrote something else. John chapter 8. I wish happily you would read with me these first 11 verses. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. This is a kind of a regular occurrence and we know that scene. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery and when they had set her in the midst... <laughs> They said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Let's not get too explicit here, guys. Now Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him. Ah, ah, we'll get him here. That they might have something of which to accuse him. Just stop there. I'm not so sure they were so interested in this woman. They were more interested in tripping Jesus. And religious scholars who are only religious and that's it, that's about all they exist for too. And, it, and, and then it went on, but Jesus stooped down. Oh, isn't this interesting? And he did what? He did what? Wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. I'm ignoring you guys. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, the classic line, so he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone. You throw the first one. Mm. And again he stooped down and did what? Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went one, uh, one by one, being convicted by their conscience. See how God works? See how God works? He didn't say a word to them of judgment, condemnation, conviction, altar call, bow down before me, let's go get baptized, join the church. It, God was convicting them by their own conscience. And what they do? They scattered, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Now, this is a good fix. When Jesus had raised himself up, he saw no one but the woman. He said to her, woman, where are all your accusers? Where are all those people that just a few minutes ago brought you in here and charged you with adultery and they were ready to kill you? And all they wanted me to do was go along with it. She said, he said, has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. Has anyone thrown the first stone? No one. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Some of the greatest words in all of Holy Writ. Go. Say it with me. Go and sin no more. Whoa. Sorry, I got a little carried away there. Some of you will get accustomed to that. You say, does anybody really know what he wrote on the ground with his finger? Well, I don't know exactly, and I've never seen a, any kind of a physical transcript or transliteration of it, but I can tell you what he wrote on the heart of a hurting woman who was standing naked and ashamed because of her obvious sin. Through his son, Jesus Christ, that very same God who wrote the law defining sin, that very same God who declared judgment for all those who willfully cross over the line of sin, 
now wrote a third time, and this time he wrote G-R-A-C-E, grace. All to him, all to him. And oh, how beautifully he wrote. Never has anything been written that touches that. Shakespeare has tried, couldn't do it. Others have tried, couldn't do it. Do you know what the words really were there on the, in the ground? It's not the words on the ground, it's what was written on the heart. Where are all your accusers now? They seem to be silent. I, well, I, I, I don't, did anybody, uh, anybody throw, st- nobody. Who found you guilty then? Well, I, I, I don't know, I guess nobody. Neither do I. By the grace of God, just go. You're a new person. You don't have to live in that old slime pit anymore. You're free. The shackles are gone. The burden is lifted. You are free by the grace of Almighty God. We read Romans 6.23, at least I read a little bit of it a few minutes ago, for the wages of sin is death. But I like to get to the but part, don't you? But! But! How different a gift is from wages. Wages you earn. You have to do something. You earn it. A gift is nothing earned. Just given freely, nothing expected in return, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's give Him glory in the church this morning. Wow. Mm, thank you, thank you. In 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I believe that lady that day, even though 1 John hadn't been written yet, I believe she took that on because she knew that was my life verse and she said, I want to be like Bob. And she said, I'm taking on 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, hallelujah. She'd broken God's law. Oh, we talked about the law. She'd crossed over the line. We talked about the line. She'd missed the mark. You're sitting here today and say, boy, Bob, you don't know my story. You, don't, you know some of it, but you don't know half of it. And I've missed the mark, and I, I've stepped over the line, and I've lived over the line. And you know what? She deserved judgment. And I'll tell you something else. The religious leaders were there, and they were ready to oblige. Yep. She knows the law. They even quoted it. They said, she broke the law that Moses gave us and she deserves judgment. These are the religious freaks. I mean, these guys are... But there was a far, far different message coming from the lips of Jesus. And His message to her and every one of us who would just turn and follow Him was very clear. Here it is. As long as you are living and breathing in this life, my grace extends to you one more chance. Said I really messed up on plan A and I tried plan B and aren't you glad there are 26 letters in the alphabet? As long as you have life, as long as you have that borrowed breath, there's grace enough to sustain you and give you one more chance. Hey, the people in the church might not give you one more chance. Hey, the religious leaders might give you one more chance. Or those that think they know more about life than you do might not give you one more chance. 
But Jesus said, go. Sin no more. I am so thankful as I stand before you this morning for the grace of God. Grace. That's what it is. Just call it grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. He took it all. You say, well, I did that. Well, look, he paid for it. Oh, right, it's paid. Paid and stamped. Paid in full. And there's a story that one night Martin Luther, the great reformer, went to his bed, but he was very, very troubled. He couldn't sleep. And after tossing and turning, he fell asleep, and yet his mind was still racing. And he later would say that night he was troubled about his sin. And he fell into a dream. And in the dream, he saw an angel standing by a blackboard. And at the top of the board was Luther's name. And the angel, chalk in hand, was listing all of Martin Luther's sins. And the list filled the blackboard. Luther shuddered in despair, feeling that his sins were so many that he could never be forgiven. He said, then suddenly, right there in the middle of my dream, I saw a pierced hand writing above these li- this list these words. The blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Luther said, as I gazed in amazement, the blood flowed from that wounded hand and it washed the record clean. Corrie Ten Boom, if you have not read her story, you're not much of a book reader, I'm going to ask that you read one biography. That's all, just one. I've said this for 40-some years. Read the story of Corrie Ten Boom. I quote, When I bring my sins to the Lord Jesus, He casts them into the depths of the sea, forgiven and forgotten. Oh, He also puts up a sign. No fishing allowed. Law, judgment, and thank you, Lord, grace. Three handwritten notes. I said earlier, it's serious. This is serious business. This is an important issue. This has eternal consequences. If you're in the throes of a decision today, don't put it off. Decide now and turn to Him. We give Him the glory. Please listen to this. Thank you. I love you.
Bring peace to be alive. 